Well, good morning, New Life Church and everyone else on the internet. I'm just so glad that you're joining from your homes here today. And uh, there may be some of you uh, whom we have never met here in the building uh, in person. And uh, if that's you, we're so glad that you've found us and joined us to worship God with us together uh, today. And uh, I'm just excited about what Daniel had to share there. This Christmas project, what an appropriate way for us as a church to uh, end this, our 50th year, to bless people on the other side of the world there at Bethel, but also to bless those in our communities uh, right around us, our neighbors. And um, so I just would really encourage you to consider how you can uh, uh, give and support, participate in that project. And uh, obviously giving right now is a bit strange because we're not passing plates, we're not gathering in person. Uh, So you might wonder, how is it that you can give towards this project? And uh, while our front door, the building is locked, at any point, if you just call ahead during office hours or call from the front door of our church, we'll have a staff member here during office hours who will let you in. uh, If you want to use the Interact Machine, drop off a donation. Or on the church app or our church website, if you go there, um, you will find on the drop-down menu when you give uh, Church Christmas Project, I may say that, or Beds and Baskets, something like that, and uh, you can also give through the app and through the website as well as we try to hit that goal of $4,000. Now, I, I don't know if you're able to see in this shot or earlier during worship, but we have a whole bunch of Operation Christmas uh, Child uh, shoe boxes here, and I, I don't know how many, Uh, but well over 100, maybe up to 200 boxes we've already gathered, which I just think is incredible because I wondered how you would respond uh, in this season when we can't gather, how would you respond with this project? And so to see so many boxes come in, and I know some of you are are still assembling those, you can get those in by Tuesday, Uh, but um, uh, it's just awesome to think that every one of these boxes represents a child somewhere in the world that's gonna be blessed by you, by us, and also uh, is gonna hear about the love of Jesus Christ for them. So, so what an awesome way to bless others during this Christmas season. I just wanna give a shout out to Daniel as well, and, and not so many of you have been able to meet him yet, but as I've been working with him, and especially this week when these new restrictions came down and everything had to change, probably it was Daniel that had to, to shoulder the majority of that extra work to make this service happen. And even though we can't have people in the room here, it, it, it probably takes two or three times as much work just to pull off a Sunday morning service so that we can gather in this way. And we had to shift middle of the week, and that just meant so much extra work for Daniel. And, and I've just been so impressed as I've watched him just adjust and do the work he's needed to do to make this happen. So maybe you just want to send him an email or a note to thank him for his hard work uh, as well. And, and of course, for all of us staff, th- this new lockdown has changed everything again. Uh, I found myself yesterday feeling a little discouraged by all of that. I think all of us staff, uh, we're shepherds. You know, we want to be with our people. And uh, to not be able to do that in person is really tough for us. And so it's been a bit of a discouraging week for some of us here uh, on staff. And uh, I don't like preaching here in an almost empty room, although if you see me glancing away from the camera, as if I'm talking to somebody else in the room, it's because I do have the worship team who are here, and I'm sure they're gonna shout out a few amens at the appropriate time, and they're just gonna have to give me the energy I need, and they're gonna have to laugh really loud at my jokes. So if you, if you see me glancing away from the camera, it's because we have a handful of our worship team uh, volunteers here in the room as well, which I certainly 
appreciate. So um, while this has been discouraging, I think, for some of us here on the team at, at church, I know it's a tough time for you as well, and many of you will find yourself feeling disconnected, isolated, discouraged. And so church, I just want to continue to encourage you to consider how you can love one another and care for one another in creative ways during this time. Uh, just to day by day, week by week, be, be reaching out to, to people, your neighbors, your friends, and those within this church family that you're a part of, reaching out with a phone call, a text, or some other gesture of care to encourage one another, to really be the church during this challenging time. Now, the highlight of my week was certainly Wednesday. Now, Tuesday, when we got word of these new restrictions to take effect Thursday, I had no uh, weddings planned for the next day, for Wednesday. Well, by Tuesday evening, I had two weddings planned for Wednesday. And so many of you know that uh, Janelle Gertzen and Justin Irwin got married here on this very spot uh, on Wednesday afternoon. And then a couple hours later, Nathan Tolenar and, and Bethany Youngstra got married on this very spot. And it was just a real joy to be a part of, of that very intimate but very special um, occasion for both of those couples. And it was so cool in the evening when it was dark out and after uh, Nathan and Bethany's wedding just to be able to walk outside. And they were surprised by all of these cars uh, that filled the parking lot, pointed towards the front doors, and when they walked out, just all the lights that were flashing and the horns that were honking, and it was a very moving thing and a beautiful picture of the church in action. And so just a congratulations to those couples and families and church, just find a way to reach out to them and congratulate them as well as they begin this, this new journey in their lives. All right, well, we're continuing this morning our series called Dear Church. We're right in the middle of this eight-part series. Uh, this is part five here. We've been going through the seven letters from Jesus to his church that we find in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. And what we've been discovering is that these seven letters provide for us the seven marks of a healthy church and the seven marks of a healthy Christian. And so a few weeks ago, we, when we looked at the letter to Ephesus, we found that uh, the church is called to be fervent in love. When we looked at that letter to Smyrna, we found that the church is, is called to be patient in suffering. Last week in that letter to the church in Pergamum, we found that the church is to be uncompromising in truth with God's word. And, and if you uh, took in that message last uh, week, you heard me say that we are not to avoid the hard bits in the Bible. There are some hard bits in here. And, and uh, we're not to diminish or avoid those hard bits. And uh, we're going to put that into practice here this morning because this fourth letter we're going to look at, the letter to the church in Thyatira, contains some hard bits, but some important bits. Uh, so I, I just hope and pray that we really give our ear and our hearts and our minds to God this morning as we look at this letter to the church in Thyatira because it really is a letter to us as well. And I believe it has a lot to say to us. So I, I've, I've titled this message, Tolerance in Thyatira. Now, now today, tolerance is almost always used in a positive sense, right? We, we think of tolerance as one of the highest of virtues in our society. And myself, coming from a Mennonite background, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be born in Canada if it wasn't for the tolerance of this land. Uh, my ancestors, the Mennonites, were moving around Europe and around the world trying to find a place of tolerance, of liberty, where they could live their life the way they wanted. Uh, and so they found themselves here. 
So tolerance very often is a virtue, but this morning we're going to discover that there is a type of tolerance that Jesus himself doesn't tolerate. And so I invite you, if you have your Bible there, to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to read together this letter to the church in Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 29. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, now's maybe a great time to hit pause to go grab that. And if you don't have a notepad, maybe you want to bring that in a pen as well so you can jot some notes. Okay, this is Jesus' words to the church in Thyatira. Revelation 2, verses 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like the blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches uh, will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces with pottery, and that's a quotation from the Old Testament. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, as we, uh, as we look at these words, words that you are speaking to us today, we just open up our hearts and our minds to hear your word, to receive it, Uh, and to learn from it. So God, uh, would you speak to us and would you shape us according to your good purposes for us? In Jesus' name. All right, Thyatira. You've probably never heard of Thyatira. It was a small city, uh, even in its day, unlike some of the others we've looked at, Ephesus, Smyrga, Pergamum. They were prolific, large, global cities. Thyatira was a little bit different. It was not on the coast. It was set inland in what's present-day Turkey. Uh, in fact, the, the, the well-known Roman historian Pliny famously referred to Thyatira as, quote, an unimportant community. So maybe an ancient version of Regina, I would say. You know that sort of place that, um, I got some claps here in the room. You know that sort of place that you probably wouldn't choose to go, wouldn't want to go to, but you have to drive through when you're going uh, across the country. And so, so probably kind of like a, a, a present-day Regina, so go Bombers. Uh, But this was a city that a few hundred years before Jesus writes this letter was founded by Alexander the Great. And its patron saint was Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, who was known as the son of God. 
Now, Thyatira was uh, a city known for a couple of industries. It was known for its bronze smiths, its metalwork, both bronze and silver. And so it was a city that was dominated by these guilds. Guilds were kind of like trade unions and social clubs and religious orders all mixed into one. And so many of these Christians would have been a part of these trade guilds that filled this city when they worked with bronze and other metals. It was also famous for its textile industry. Uh, in the, the water in this place that came up from the springs was of such a unique quality. It had such a high uh, mineral content that it produced the most vibrant reds and purple colors. And so this was a place where, where textiles were made and dyed with purples and reds. And so you might remember when Paul is on his missionary journey in Acts chapter 16 and he travels to the city of Philippi uh, he meets a woman, we're told, from Thyatira, who is a seller of purple cloth. Her name is Lydia. And she becomes the very first Christian on the European continent. Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple cloth. It was a difficult place for, uh, to, to be a Christian, faithfully. And so Jesus commends this little church. He says to them in verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And so we kind of get a picture of a church that, that in a lot of ways is doing well. They're, they're striving to do good works. This might be the sort of church that would be full of uh, acts of service to one another and to their community. And maybe it had a food pantry and a used clothing store and they found ways to be serving one another and serving their community. And Jesus commends them for their caring spirit. But he says, there's a problem here, church. In fact, Jesus is gonna show us that the church in Thyatira has, has two problems. The first problem was uh, that there was blatant ongoing sin taking place in this church. We hear about this woman named Jezebel. Now, we don't know if Jezebel, uh, if that's her actual name. Likely it's not. I don't, have you ever met a Jezebel? I don't think I ever have. We normally, we, we name our children after heroes, the heroes of scripture, right? So we've got lots of Daniels, and we've got Daves, and we've got uh, Johns, and Rebecca's and Sarah's, and if you're in Steinbach, we got some Abrahams, Abrams, which reminds me of my favorite joke. Uh, why did they build a wall around Steinbach? To stop the spread of Abe's. Okay, no laughs in the room. I hope you laughed at home. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, we, we, we don't name our children after the villains of, of the Bible. I've never met a Goliath, I've never met a Judas, and I've never met a Jezebel because you may know the story we find in the book of 1 Kings of Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a, a, a woman who was the daughter of the king of a neighboring nation. Her, her father's name, uh, who was the king, his name was Ethbaal, which literally means one who is with Baal. Baal was the god of that nation, one who was with their pagan god. That was her father. Now, she got married to the king of Israel, Ahab, Ahab, as the king, the leader of God's people, his job was to be a guardian and protector of God's people. And he married this, this woman who was a worshiper of another God. And Jezebel, if you go back into 1 Kings and if you read that story, you find that she influenced her husband uh, outside of the ways and will of God and into the practices of the other nations, the practices of the pagans. 
and, and as, as did many others in the nation. And so Jezebel influenced many of the people of God away from God, away from his word, into ways that contradicted God's will. She influenced people into sin. And so this woman here in this church in Thyatira, we don't know much about her. She probably, you know, her name was maybe Julie or Samantha, but, but Jesus says she really is a Jezebel. She's a Jezebel because even though she identifies herself with the people of God, she's a part of the church. She says she's a follower of Jesus, yet she claims to be a prophetess receiving other words from God, which Jesus calls Satan's so-called deep secrets that apparently she had and she gave to people, which led them into sexual immorality, led them into pagan practices that did not align with the will of God for his people. So likely, Jezebel's teaching was, was essentially that the inner life of the Christian was disconnected. It was divorced from the outer life. You know, the, the, the things we would, would believe in our heart were, were separated from our actions, from our behaviors. She, she probably taught that because God is a God of grace and a God of forgiveness, it doesn't really matter how we live. We can still keep doing the things that we did before because God, this wonderful God that we meet in Jesus, is a God full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So it doesn't really matter how we live our life. That's probably what she taught. And that was kind of a common conception there in the first churches. In fact, Paul had to address that over and over again in Romans chapter 6. He addresses this uh, wrong way of thinking when he says at the beginning of Romans 6 verses 1 and 2, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In other words, he's saying, should we keep on sinning because God is a God of grace and maybe we might think the more we sin, the more grace and forgiveness we receive and the more we can make God look gracious and forgiving by multiplying our sins. And he says, by no means, no, it's grace that leads us to live a different life, to live righteously and so he continues in verse 17, he says, thanks be to God that though we used to be slaves to sin, uh, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. And in verse 22, now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. The benefit you reap in God's grace and forgiveness leads us into holiness. So I, church, I think this is, if you've got a notepad, maybe this is what you want to jot down. You can't divorce grace from godliness. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. Church, you cannot divorce grace from godliness. And we see this over and over again later in Ephesians chapter two, very well-known verses, verses eight to 10 of Ephesians chapter two, where Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Maybe many of you have committed that to memory. We're saved not by our own works, not by our own righteousness, no. We're saved uh, by God's grace expressed to us through Jesus, which we receive by faith in his works, 
We are saved by grace. But if we go on to the next verse, Paul continues, he says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You have not been saved by your holiness, but you have been saved for your holiness, Paul says. And, and this is so important that we understand this because this is the gospel. The gospel at its heart is change. The gospel is the power to change. So what Paul is saying is God loves us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. He doesn't leave us as we are. So the gospel is not change and I'll accept you. No, not at all. But the gospel is God saying, I will accept you. And then I'll change you. I will accept you and then I'll change you. And so the heart of the gospel is change. You cannot divorce grace from godliness. Just one more brief passage which I think illustrates this so clearly. It's in Titus. Again, the words of Paul in Titus chapter 2 verses 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What teaches us to say no to ungodliness? God's grace. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So did you hear that? By his grace, he has saved us, not by our works, but now that we have his grace, that grace teaches us to live godly lives, to say no to wickedness and yes to righteousness. And so in God's grace that we receive is the power as we, as, as we love God to, to be changed, uh, to be empowered, to live life the way God calls us and wants us to live life, to live godly, holy, pure lives. And so it is, it is a deficient gospel that says, believe in Jesus and it doesn't matter how you live. Believe in Jesus and you don't need to change. And this is what Jesus is saying to the church. Don't divorce grace from godliness because grace leads us to greater godliness. And the evidence of grace at work in our life is a growing desiring and a growing striving and pursuing of holiness. And so what is the mark of the church, of a healthy church and a healthy Christian that we find in this letter? Well, it might be this, that a healthy church and a healthy Christian pursues holiness. Pursues holiness, is not ambivalent about their sin. Now, God is a gracious God, and Jesus says in this letter, he is patient. He has been giving this woman and those who have bought into her ways, he has been giving them lots of time to repent and turn from their ways. You know, God does not desire to punish or to judge. He doesn't. But his kindness, his, his, his patience is God's kindness that is to lead us to repentance. But where there is no repentant heart, God must act. God must judge. And so Jesus is ready to do that because he's given time, but there has been 
no change. There has been no repentance, just continuing, ongoing, blatant sin. And, and, and what Jesus knows and what he's telling the church is, church, sin spreads. Sin spreads. It spreads in our lives and it spreads in our relationships and it spreads in a church. It's kind of like a virus, like a virus we have right now that goes in the air and others catch it. And what Jesus is saying is sin is a virus. It's contagious. It's infectious. It spreads. It will hurt. It will take more and more of you and it will hurt more and more people. And that's why Jesus wants to stop the spread of this destructive sin in this church. His correction is his protection. And this is something that we need to know. God's Correction is his protection. Jesus' discipline is his love for us. And so this was the first problem he's addressing. There, there's blatant, ongoing, destructive sin in this church. But, but actually, that wasn't the main problem that Jesus was addressing. We find in verse 20, the main problem, he says, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who engages in this sin. Jesus' problem with this church is their toleration of that sin around them. Jesus' primary concern is, is not that there are people that are doing bad things, but there's good people that are not doing anything about it. You see, they, they see it, they see it as sin, they see its destructive effect in, in, in the lives of the people around them, and these good people in the church do nothing, do nothing about it. Maybe they take a bit of a hands-off approach. Maybe thinking, well, you know, I'm living my life. I'm obeying God. I'm striving for holiness. And what someone else do is really none of my business. It's really none of my business. And so maybe this church had a bit of an individualistic mindset. Uh, and, and, and in that way, maybe it's a lot like us today, you know. If there's something that's true about probably Western modern society is that we value rugged individualism. Right, that is one of our highest values, rugged individualism. And, and so one of the mantras of our day might be, mind your own business, mind your own business. But that's not true of the kingdom of God. It's not true of the kingdom of God. That's not the way of the church. Jesus is saying here, it's not enough to just pursue holiness yourself. We're to help one another to pursue holiness. We're to help our brothers and sisters to pursue holiness. Holiness is not a personal pursuit. It is a corporate pursuit. It is a collective activity. Maybe you want to write that down if you've got a notebook. Holiness is not just a personal pursuit. Holiness is a corporate pursuit. It's interesting. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus first talks about the church when he, when he says those well-known well words. He says, I'm on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. And what is Jesus' very first instruction to the church? Well, we find it a couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus' first instruction to the church. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15. I'll read verses 15 through 18. Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of one or two witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. There you have it, the church. 
And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then you are to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which isn't to say you would treat them poorly. It's just that you would treat them as if they were not actually believers in Jesus Christ. Truly I tell you, Jesus goes on, whatever you bind on Uh, on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Well, what what Jesus is saying is is I have called the church to be that, that, a a corrective body, a corrective body that, that, that shapes each person within it to greater and greater holiness. We are, Jesus says in those words, we are our brother's keeper. You, you are your brother and sister's keeper. We are responsible to one another and we are responsible for one another. That's one of the reasons Jesus calls us into church, spiritual community, instead of just calling us to himself with our own individual relationship with God, you know, that we can have at home with our Bible and our own prayer life and sitting in front of the TV screen and watching a better, better preacher than myself, you know, having our own relationship with God. No, God has called us into a family, a spiritual community. Why? So that we can shape one another for greater holiness. That's one of the purposes of the church. That's what Jesus says here. That's the job of the church. And so you have that, that verse in Proverbs 27, 17, which says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And as a church, we are to sharpen one another. We are to shape one another that we might be holier together. So what does that mean kind of in practice? I just want to suggest a few things. What it doesn't mean is that we're to go about pointing other people's faults. And if you heard, if you heard uh, the, what I had to say here and in some of these verses that I've, I've shared and you thought that's what it meant, like you just had to go around pointing out people's faults, you know, finding someone who's maybe a little overweight and saying, you probably got the sin of gluttony, you shouldn't eat so much and, 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 and maybe, you know, taking someone to task for, for the for the. TV show that they watch that you maybe think they ought not to be watching and when someone rolls their eyes at you and you think that's appropriate kind of calling them out on that it doesn't mean to go about just pointing out everybody's faults and sins. Uh, It does mean that we're not supposed to sit idly by while we watch people harm themselves, harm others and harm God's name. That's what Jesus is saying. Church, don't sit idly by while you watch others harm themselves harm others, and harm God's name. If only more people in this church in Thyatira had had the care and, and had the courage to stand up and do the hard but loving thing to correct. Correction is an act of love, Jesus is showing us here. What he's saying to this church is, do you love one another enough that you're willing to call others out of sin and to greater holiness? Do you love one another enough? And so what what we need to hear is is that when we play this role in one another's lives, that has to flow from love because God corrects us, he rebukes us, he disciplines us for our good because he's a loving father and every loving father disciplines their child for their good. And so the church is is never to do this 
uh, out motivated by anger or punishment. This is not a punitive thing, but as an act of love and restoration that people may be turned away from harm and turned towards goodness and holiness and life. And so you see this at the end, the very final words of the book of James, chapter five, verses 19 and 20. What a way to end a, a, a book. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover, cover over a multitude of sins. Whoever would go and turn a brother or sister from a harmful path would save them, would save their lives, save them, from harm and save others from them as well. That is an act of courageous love. And so I, I wonder, has anyone ever done that to you? Has anyone ever sharpened you in that way? How did you receive that? How did you receive that? Is there someone in your life whom you uh, need to lovingly call to holiness? So the first thing that we need to, to, to see here, church, is that, is that correction is an act of love. The second thing I, I want to say here is that we are never to put a finger in someone's chest without putting your other arm around their shoulder. This sort of thing flows out of relationship. It flows out of love, but it flows out of relationship. A willingness, a commitment to help see someone through sin, through struggle. And if you're not willing um, if you're not willing to be a part of the solution, then, you're, then you shouldn't call out somebody's sin, right? We should never put a finger in someone's chest unless we're willing to put an arm around their shoulder. And what God doesn't want us to do is to do any kind of like drive-by shootings, right? Where we blast people with a rebuke, with a hard word, and then we speed off and leave them bleeding and wounded on the ground. No, not at all. We're called to walk with one another, through sin and struggle because we love one another. So this flows out of relationship. And, and the third thing I would want to say is that we are called, Jesus is saying here, to be our brothers and sisters keeper. And I think that word brother and sister is, is so important. This is something uh, that we are to, to do with one another within in the church. Um, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, I, I won't go into it, but he says, what right of it is, a, is it of mine to judge those out in the world? It's God to judge those people. We're called to judge one another. We're called to call one another out of our sin in, in, into holiness. Um, and so what I, what I want to make clear is we're not called, called to go out into the world and demand people change because the gospel isn't change and God accepts you. The gospel is God's grace covers your sin. And when you receive that, it'll change you. And so we need to call the world to, to the truth of the gospel, the love of God in Jesus Christ. But with one another within the church, we are called to hold one another, to call one another to God's high standard for our lives. But before we wrap this up here, um, I think I would be remiss if I maybe didn't share these words of Jesus that we have uh, in the letter or in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter seven when Jesus says this. 
He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so the last thing that I would want us to to hear in this letter of Jesus to us is, Yes, we're not, let us not be those who tolerate the destructive sin of others around us. But but let us not tolerate our own sin either. Let's firstly not tolerate sin in ourselves. Let's humble ourselves and, and, and consider, is there anything in my life that needs to change? That needs to change. So, so my question for you is, is God's grace causing you to make peace with your sin or is it causing you to to war against your sin is is God's grace just kind of causing you to kind of settle in with your sin or is God's grace calling you and empowering you to pursue holiness and change in your life to turn away from and struggle against materialism and anger and lust and to strive for holiness because the mark of a healthy church and the mark of a healthy Christian is that we would pursue holiness both personally and collectively. And so what is Jesus' teaching to us in this letter? Well, I think it's this. Church, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness personally and pursue holiness collectively. Um, And so here in a moment after our final song, you're gonna see some uh, questions that are gonna sit on your screen and I would just encourage you to, to pause there. Keep those questions up on the screen and if with you're with your family, to have some discussion around those questions with your family. One of the questions is, is how is God most powerfully speaking to you in this message? And so I just would encourage you in a few minutes to, to just to talk about this together if, if you're with others, if you're with your family or, or maybe if you're alone, maybe to call a friend and and and. Uh, um, talk about that with, with a friend later today. Um, but before we um, close our service with a final song of worship, let me just share with you some of Jesus' final words to this church in Thyatira. He, he said in verse 23, um, he said, I am he who searches hearts and minds. That's how Jesus refers to himself. I am he who searches hearts and minds. That reminded me of the words of David in the prayer, his prayer that we have in Psalm 139, the way he closes that prayer. And the words should be up here on the screen. At the end of Psalm 139, uh, David prays this prayer. And I, I just want this to be our prayer together. He prays this. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, God, and know my heart. Jesus says, I am the one who searches hearts and minds. And so I just want to invite you into a moment of prayer. Here in a moment, the the team's going to come up and lead us in a final song but I want to invite you right where you're at right now into a moment of prayer maybe you want to bow your head and close your eyes and I want you to pray these same words um, to God right now the words that are on your screen search me God and know my heart
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just take a moment and pray that prayer.